So I think our investors、um, look at it from the aspect of resources. At a high level, I think our investors probably like the fact that the DoD and and the government, some of these programs have have bought into our technology. Because those can be long-term sources of revenue. So again, if you're an investor and you're wearing your ROI and revenue hat, that's a good thing. The other side of that is resources. A lot of times, government projects can be distracting. As I mentioned before, the moonshots. You know, are you working on something crazy that, other than this single customer, provides no other value to the company? And our investors, before we sign on to a deal, we have to vet that out and make sure that. The project we're doing with the prime or the government really falls in line with our core business strategy, our core productization, and our core revenue strategy or revenue streams. We said no to some things that were just way far outside what we're doing, but by and large, our investors have been supportive from the standpoint of as long as it checks two boxes, it can be long-term revenue and it falls in line with your current resource. This is Undiluted, the show about the amazing founders and companies who have used government R&D grants, contracts, and sales to build their products, grow their companies, and keep their equity. We're Katie Person and Gene Kesselman from MIT, and Jeff Warzum from FedScout. And on today's show, we talk with Mel Blumieux about how he started and grew his company, Electron Inks, with SBIRs and Inkytel Investments. So. Trained way back as a material scientist with a PhD from Iowa State University, and then I did my postdoc in chemical engineering at Stanford University. I was actually an IC postdoctoral fellow at Stanford, and so you know, with the typical pathway of being a postdoc, I was applying for faculty、uh, positions throughout the country. And in the meantime, we were trying to wrap up some manuscripts of some of the research we were doing at Stanford. And then, you know, one night we were working on one of those manuscripts in a coffee shop in、uh, Palo Alto. And I think it's a pretty typical story in Palo Alto.、Uh, but usually, someone overhears your、um, conversation, and in this case, that person was from the venture side of of the world. And we just started talking, struck up a conversation, explained the technology in very basic terms, and then that led to talking to more investors, scientific advisors, and soon we were running the impression that we could start a company、uh, around this technology. And so. Spent the next few months looking to raise a Series A and, and seeing if we can do this, and then ultimately came down to not to add drama to it, but it really came down to a a key decision of I had an offer for a faculty position, and a few days later we got a Series A term sheet offer, and so at that point I think more or less made a decision to pursue starting a company. I had. You know, no aspirations to start a company going into my career. So this kind of stumbled upon me the whole innovation and entrepreneurship pathway. But I'm glad I did it. And going back, this was in 2010. Started a company、uh, again out of Stanford with a few other co-founders that's still in business today, doing great.、It、was kind of a tough time in my life in the sense that. My wife, who's awesome and put up with a lot, she was living on the opposite side of the country, over in Chicago. And going back and forth every weekend or, or twice a month was getting tough. And so after four, four and a half years, my first company, I left, moved back to Chicago, and that's where I met my co-founder and colleague Brett Walker. And we basically struck up a conversation about some of his chemistry and thought it was really good technology and really liked Brett. I'm working with Brett. Thought he was a smart dude, and we hit it off and, and just started working on electronics. Before we get too far into Electron Inks, I'd love to just find out more about that decision. I think a lot of our listeners are maybe at that their own inflection point, trying to decide: do they pursue a, a STEM career, maybe in academia, 
or do they go after this very shiny career path of entrepreneurship that's in movies all the time. But can you share a little bit about how you made such a big decision? Yeah, I think if you look at the metrics of the situation, they do not align in your favor to be an entrepreneur. And I would actually argue the opposite of, of what you just said. I think the sparkly career is, is to be a professor, get tenure, and have a great low-key career. That's a, a great rewarding career. You get to mentor students, and it's a decent pace. I think it's a very rewarding career. In my situation, there was confounding factors. At that time, having discussions with my wife, she thought I was crazy. We're hundreds of K in debt. She was also a student at Stanford. And why do this when you can have a secure pathway? And I think ultimately for me, it came down to the decision of, I could probably come back to this career at some point in the future, working at a university or being a faculty. But this right here is a once in a lifetime opportunity. It takes a lot of energy to do. And then also I think my co-founders at that time, I really enjoyed working with them, smart people. And it was just more of a comfort level that I had already fallen into. And then I think the last piece of that is just sheer ignorance. No idea what I was about to get into. And I think that's probably a good thing. So I think those are the three or four factors that I was weighing at the time. Gotcha. Thank, yeah, thank you for that honest response. I feel like this is just one of these pieces that gets glossed over in, in the movies on people's lives are these inflection points and these really multifaceted, tough decisions that would have such big impacts on the rest of your life and your trajectory. I guess I'd use the term sort of level-headedness. I think in a lot of key positions, whether it's my position or physicians or other positions, you just have to keep an even keel. Not every decision is the last decision you'll make. So we try to put it in our minds where this wasn't a big decision. It was just, this feels comfortable at the time. And if you're smart, you have a good attitude, you'll make it through. So we try not to view it as like the, an, an ultimatum decision. And that's how we run our business. We, we have key decisions to make on a daily basis. And if you take that attitude, like this could be an ultimatum, then you can be put into position where you're not going to make the right decision. Absolutely. I think we're going to spend the majority of our conversation on your current company, Electronics. Right now in your story where I saw your first company and you said you got a, a term sheet for a Series A, which honestly is, is pretty amazing. You know, so many people pursue venture, but I was wondering if you have any reflections on the experience of going straight from the lab to a venture-backed startup. It's definitely a very different way to talk about your technology to people. I think that's the biggest thing. Again, trained as engineers, it's very often difficult for us to tell the story to a broader audience, not only what you're doing, but why you're doing it and who cares about it at the end of the day. When you're in the lab, when you're trained as an engineer, you're just, you're doing experiments, you're following an outline, and sometimes you don't really see the large picture. So for me, that was actually one of the cool things about talking to investors is you get to immediately see a different perspective of, again, the big picture, who cares what the market is, why you're doing it. So that was the biggest difference for me. Our experiences were great. Certainly you have some quirky interviews that <laughs> kind of go off the rails in some cases, but for the most part, they're very professional. These investors, they want to foster your technology and ultimately at the end of the day, the investors have a lot of technologies in front of them and they're all good. They all have addressed huge markets. They're really betting on the team. And so their purpose is to develop a great relationship with you and vice versa. So most of my experiences 
with dealing with VCs, whether it's financial investors or, or, or CVCs, has been really positive. So right now you're in your second company, Electronics. Can you just give us a little bit of an overview of what Electronics does, what your product does, who your customers are? When I started my career in material science and especially at my uh, postdoc working on organic electronics, we started formulating conductive inks first made of um, carbon-based uh, materials, so nanotubes, graphene, multi-wall nanotubes. Then that switched over to, to metal particles and then metal nanowires. So really uh, a lot of formulation experience. And that's really my background. And then at Electron Inks, I, I got to give the credit to Brett. The chemistry was really developed by him and his uh, graduate work. This is completely different. So everything I mentioned previously is like a dispersion of some inorganic particle or, or moiety dispersed in inorganic phase, like a polymer or surfactant. What we have at Electron Inks is a metal complex particle-free conductive ink. So it's basically a chemical solution and not dispersion. And I thought this type of technology could really overcome a lot of the issues that's in sort of the standard nanoparticle inks and paste on the market, whether it's graphene, carbon, or metal-based. Print electronics is an industry that's been around for five, six decades. Yeah, maybe just to help me understand this. So as you're talking, what I'm imagining is that if I were to lay a battery on one side of a piece of paper and an LED on the other side of the piece of paper, if I had a ballpoint pen with your fluid inside, I could draw a line that would become a, effectively a wire connecting the battery and it would turn the LED on. Conceptually, is that kind of right? That's amazing you just said that because you just described our CircuitScribe product. I don't even know if you're aware of our CircuitScribe product, CircuitScribe.com. So we actually started the company. It's funny, our first technology or first product on the market, we literally made a conductive ink pen that is certified non-toxic, dries at room temperature. So you write it on paper and then connect magnetic modules to it to, to make circuits. And that's used as a STEM educational tool for grades K through 12. So yes, that's our direct-to-consumer product. Our industrial inks that I just described are basically replacing, you're right, replacing this silver in that pen with a higher performance silver for more higher performing circuits that are found in printed circuit boards, semiconductor devices. So yes, it's, it's a more higher performance form of metallization. I, I don't pretend to understand the chemistry, but the application makes sense now. So can you share a little bit about what problem was that solving? What was problematic about the existing ways of creating circuits that, that the electronics addresses? You know, I talked to you about the thesis of our technology, the, the core chemistry development. Now, from a business model standpoint, we really focus on two ways of, of doing business with our customers. So one is providing them conductive inks, and the other is maybe there's some licensing or we'll develop a custom product for certain customers. Ultimately, our goal from that standpoint is to provide our customers a sort of a more agile flexibility in manufacturing of their products. So a lot of metallization, look, at the end of the day, what we do is metallization. It's super boring. It's, it's not sexy. We're putting metal on different components to make circuits or, or boards or what have you. But the ways to do metallization, the conventional way in electronics industry is to do things like plating, uh, or some vacuum metallization process. What conductive inks, or print, I, I should say, what print electronics has tried to do in this market is get rid of all that big, heavy, bulky, expensive equipment, 
that requires vacuum and just use conventional tools like a spray coater or a inkjet to make the same types of electronic circuitry that this you know semiconductor industry can do and so then you get away from the metallization chemistry there into your printed conductive inks which i just talked about a few minutes ago and when it comes to the printed conductive inks again the shortcoming there is they just haven't been able to achieve the electrical performance frankly speaking and the reliability that the semiconductor industry can do with their metallization technology we try to do the best of both worlds we try to take the semiconductor the performance and reliability of semiconductor grade metallization and bring it into the print electronics agile manufacturing I appreciate that now that comparison of how you would print with an inkjet printer. Like all of a sudden, I can imagine how quickly you could create a, a circuit if you could, you know, print it with a printer. That's really cool. Were, were you instantly enchanted by this when you started talking to Brett? Did you just know this was something you wanted to be a part of, or like how did you make the decision to to get on board with this? Yeah, I think. Just drawing on my past experience with developing inks in my first role or my first company, we really learned that chemistry is a good bit of it, but really 90% of the work to get it to market is the engineering behind making it printable. Can you manufacture it at scale? Can you find partners and customers? I learned how to do that earlier in my career and just really was drawn to the technology that Brett had because again, this thesis of semiconductor chemistry into print electronics. So he had the chemistry to do that. And I had some of the background on connections, investors, customers, partners, and really the engineering experience to get that to scale. So I thought it'd be a good partnership. Again, we had no idea where it would go. Aspirations of where we are now, I think weren't there, it was more just let's see what we can do. And really just developing a relationship with Brett. I think that was core because the technology only goes as far as a team developing it. And that's both working together in the lab, but also the view that investors see of what you're doing. As I mentioned, at the end of the day, investors and customers, they see a lot of good technologies, technology that stands on its head, it's good to go. But is there a good team behind it to grow it? This show is largely about using government programs, government funding, working with the government as a customer. And I believe you started your government engagement through the large primes, through the systems integrators. So I was wondering if you could just tell us that story, like, how did you meet them? How did you discover that they might be a customer and, and what was that like? Yeah, working with some of the DOD primes has really been a rewarding experience for our company. You know, a lot of the, the, the customers that we have are really tough. Tough in terms of the timelines. Everything is super fast paced and you get to pat, check all these boxes and it's a process. I think the thing about working with the, the primes, at least in our experience, is we're working on technology that's a few years off. So the challenge isn't the, the timelines and the hustle. It's more just the supreme technical specs that they have. And so from our perspective, it's a little bit of a different challenge in our everyday commercial customers. Working with the primes and, and the DOD and the government, you're focused on really future technology. The specs are super, super tough. And I feel working towards those specs has made our company and our technology, frankly speaking, a lot better. And we're able to do it on a timeline that is a little bit more, I don't want to say relaxed, but at least it's more realistic. And so I think from that perspective, it's been great to really push our technology for all our customers working on these really extreme specs. 
So at the end of the day, working with the primes has, has been, I would say, tremendously advantageous for our product development overall. Could, could you help us dimensionalize that a little bit? If you, if you think back to either a prototypical project with the primes or maybe the, the first project with the primes, can you break down that timeline and what were the major milestones? I've, I've heard that the test and evaluation to put a new product into a systems integrator supply chain is really grueling. Can you share a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I think without going into details about any given experience, I can tell you some of the high level things that we're working on. Some of the major programs that we see is again, agile manufacturing. We see a lot of work for high temp hypersonic materials. And so for that, you know, our first go to market product silver just isn't applicable. So we had to think about higher temp materials, whether it's nickel, gold, or even higher temperature materials like platinum. The commercial customers really don't pay a lot of attention to our gold, platinum, palladium products, whereas these types of customers typically do. They find value in that, whether again, it's for high temperature applications, extreme sensors. And then another big area too is space manufacturing. The ability to manufacture electronics in space is becoming a key topic. And our materials, just the way that they're, they're able to print the long shelf lives that they have, lend themselves nicely to those programs. So again, I honestly don't remember some of the initial projects, but those are some of the main topics we're working on. Hypersonics, space programs, extreme sensors. And a lot of the words we hear are more like it's not really product development, it's more like moonshot proposals. But again, those working on those moonshot proposals, you get to certain milestones in that process where those technical milestones can be used for other commercial products that you have within your revenue streams. That makes sense. For a number of years, I was running an incubator for GovTech companies. And honestly, a lot of our smalls really struggled to figure out how to work with the primes, how to find the right people within the prime, how to navigate their small business oversight and you know, check all the boxes, whether it was their ISO 9001 or other evaluation and uh, certifications and qualifications the prime wanted. And do, you, do you have any reflections for young entrepreneurs or young companies that are considering working with the primes, how to be successful there? Yeah, again, good question. I think, let me tie it back to specifically what we're doing. When it comes to a, a conductive ink technology, I would say the primes and, and the DOD and in general, the government really has no idea how to work with the conductive ink. And so you have to bring them a system because they're systems integrators. That's what they are. So we spent a ton of time working with some of the best screen printing companies in, in the world, some of the best inkjet printing companies in the world, spray coating, aerosol jet. We spent a lot of time and resources in developing relationships with these equipment companies to get our inks processable on their equipment, whether it's printing or curing or, or whatever it is, so that we can give a system to these types of customers. So it's a tremendous amount of energy, a, a good spend on resources, but it is rewarding again, because we can use those relationships with these printing companies for some of our commercial customers. So yes, clearly when we started working with the, the, the primes and the DOD, we didn't get this at first. And they're like, guys, it just led to a lot of awkward conversations. It's again, what the heck can we do with a conductive ink? Uh, so it's really just getting that systems provided to them so that they can integrate it. And then from the manufacturing front, uh, that's another big risk that we faced. Cause as you said, you need ISO 9, 9000, ISO 14,000. 
You can spend a lot of CapEx as a small company to make your facility up to that grade. And so what we did was we developed our um, scale process in-house, and then we transferred some of that technology to a toll manufacturer here in the U.S. that is a you know ISO 9000, ISO 14000 certified facility so that we knew and our customers knew at the end of the day our product would be coming from a very reliable source. So at the end of the day, it comes it boils down to two things, so the front end and the back end. On the front end, you have to make sure you can manufacture your product at ISO standards that they can accept. So we did that. And on the back end, you've got to give them systems. And we spent a lot of time and energy, years, two, three, four years, to develop these ecosystems to hand off to these customers. That's a really impressive vision that you were able to work towards. It sounds like an extremely long sales cycle. You're giving me too much credit. There was no vision. It was a process of learning <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> or at least you had persistence. Yeah, I think that it's persistence, but everyone makes mistakes. And I think the sign of a good org is not the mistakes you make, but really how fast you can recover. And I think electronics, we've been nimble and ultra responsive to our customer needs. You touched on this a little bit when you were talking about how the primes didn't know how to work with electronic and company. How, for first question, how did you find the right people to take a meeting? We got lucky because COVID changed a lot. Pre-COVID is when we developed a lot of these relationships and we were able to go to conferences, tech conferences, and meet people face to face. And and that was really helpful. And some of our investors had connections to key people. But the ability to, to do demos and to meet people face-to-face -face was key. I would be sorry for a lot of companies that are in our space that weren't able to establish that infrastructure prior to COVID. So I think, yeah, in summary, I think the ability to go to conferences, to meet people, and then through investor networks. But meeting people in person, being able to do in-person demos was key to develop these relationships. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I'm always, I don't know. Not shocked is the wrong word, but reminded by how much of an interpersonal relationship market this is. You know, there's, yeah, it, yep. happy hours, trade shows, conferences still play a huge role. Yeah, it's, I mean, you can maintain day-to-day -day business through Zoom and, and WebEx and, and all these things, but to really move the needle on innovation and new product development, at least for companies like us, we're human. We need to see things. We need to touch, feel, smell, and you don't believe in it unless you can actually see it yourself and demo it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You touched on investors as an important channel for meeting some of these customers at the large systems integrators. I was wondering if you have any reflections on what your investors have thought about you working with government either directly or through systems integrators have they generally been supportive or have has there been concern so i think our investors um look at it from the aspect of resources at a high level i think our investors probably like the fact that the dod and and the government some of these programs has, have bought into our technology because those can be long-term sources of revenue. So again, if you're an investor and you're wearing your ROI and revenue hat, that's a good thing. The other side of that is resources. A lot of times government projects can be distracting. As I mentioned before, the moonshots, you know, are you working on something crazy that other than this single customer provides no other value to the company? And our investors, before we sign on to a deal, we have to vet that out and make sure that the project we're doing with the prime or the government 
really falls in line with our core business strategy, our core productization, and our core revenue strategy or revenue streams. We said no to some things that were just way far outside what we're doing, but by and large, our investors have been supportive from the standpoint of as long as it checks two boxes, it can be long-term revenue and it falls in line with your current resource usage. That seems like a very fair evaluation criteria. There's one investor on your cap table that I would love to know more about. I understand you've received an investment from InQtel, which for those who aren't aware is the CIA's effectively their venture capital fund. And so I was curious if you could share a little bit about like, how did you get on InQtel's radar? What was it like pitching to them? Do you have any thoughts on other companies who are considering pitching to InQtel? The story with InQtel began actually with a, a partner there. She was at, I believe, Applied Ventures when we were talking to Applied. And then she went back over and we had more conversations with InQtel is risky, right? Because you don't know what the work program is going to be. I mean, let's say they give you $1 of investment. Typically, a portion of that dollar is equity and a portion of that is for a work program. That's your model. And I think some co-investors might not accept that model. Certain investors might have different stipulations on that. But again, from our standpoint, when we started talking with InQtel, we were able to structure some downstream work programs that again, look to fall in line with what we wanted to do. And I can tell you that with our first work program with them, the result was a much, much better silver product. So at that point, based on that first work, work program, I think all of our, all our investors had a level of trust with this type of program. And then we actually ended up doing two more work programs with InQtel. So we've been pretty successful with that, with InQtel, with that model and, and really love the team over there. I think the other thing with InQtel is we don't get a lot of visibility into who their customers are and that's by design. And so it really is a quick way for you to work on a highly classified um, top secret type projects without knowing the details. So in other words, electronics doesn't have to go through the rigor of all these security checks directly with the customer. There's a buffer to manage that process and that relationship. So in that sense, it saves a lot of time. So there's value there. You mentioned the work program a couple of times. That may not be something that a lot of people are familiar with. It's a bit of a unique investment model. Can, can you explain how what a work program is? Yeah, typically a work program is, at least in our case, they have a customer already picked out. Again, we have no idea who the customer is or what the product is. They just give us certain specs with our product to reach. I mean, that could be a six month, 12 month, 18 month program to meet the final specs or final quote unquote deliverable, product deliverable. And so essentially it's a funded development program to develop that final product for their end customer. But that at the end of the day, typically there's no restrictions on whether you can use that technology for customers outside of Inkytel and their customers. If I understand it correctly, as you say, there's for every dollar you get from Inkytel's a let's say half of that is going into just a traditional investment pot that you can do anything you want with. The other half is effectively funded R&D where they're coming to you saying, hey, we have a requirement for blank, in your case, something around circuit development, flexible circuit right. developments. Half of this money that we're, we are giving to you is ex we expect it to be used to complete this work program to develop a solution. Is, that correct? Yeah. Again, I don't know the exact ratios. I think there's different models there, but yes, in general, that model is correct. And, you know, I really encourage all founders, especially for materials companies like us to talk to InQtel 
because again, it can be a great way to accelerate getting non-dilutive funding because again, it's a funded um, work project without restrictions. If you do a, a joint development with a commercial customer, very often they're going to want some kind of commercial terms like exclusivity, most favored pricing, et cetera. Inkutel doesn't ask for those things. So again, it could be a great way to quote unquote, get some wins under your belt by meeting a product deliverable, having that subsidized effectively and without having restrictions in the future of where you can sell that to. That sounds extremely attractive. Yeah, and they're very knowledgeable over there, both at the technical and operation side. So again, great team and have loved all the interactions with uh, with Inkutel. Awesome. And the other major government program I'm aware of that you being a part of has been SBIR, or not, not a part of, but that is you've gotten funding from is the SBIR program. And I was, I was curious if you have any reflections about the value of an SBIR dollar compared to a VC dollar, both in the application, the cost, you know, the, the time and effort to go after SBIR compared to the time and effort to go after VC, the impact that those dollars have had for you. I, I guess I was curious if you have any reflections on how SBIR has fit into your overall business planning and funding stack. I can honestly tell you when we started the company and through our initial phases, we we didn't plan to do any SBIR work. We certainly didn't budget it in. And even if we did budget it in, we wouldn't count that as hard revenue because it's it, you have no idea who's going to get chosen at the end of the day. We kind of stumbled on it backwards by starting relationships with some of these primes and them saying, hey, you should do this or that. And then we started looking into it. From an operation standpoint, our investors were on board with it as long as the, the programs or the calls, if you will, fell in line with our, our core business our revenue streams anyway. So it's just resource usage. I will say, I think one of the big issues with the SBIR for a lot of new founders is just managing the reporting, the application process, the budgeting. And so that, to be honest, is, is a lot of the toughest part of this. So to do that, we worked with a, a third-party consulting firm to do some of that, actually most of it. And that was probably one of the better decisions we've made. And then we have a dedicated person on staff here who just manages, you know, whether it's the budgeting, the meetings, the scheduling for that. So. I would say if you want to be successful and not let down your customers in the SBIR, it's better to get this infrastructure in place. Someone dedicated, not necessarily from the technical side, more from just the reporting, the budgeting and, and the application side of it, have that in line before you go into this customer base. That makes sense. I'm intrigued by something you said. You said when you went into the business, you had not planned on doing SBIR. Can you share your thinking about why from the outset you had dismissed that as a funding source? It just seems so logistically tough because you look at the process that calls, it's like a hundred pages. You just zone out when you get to page five. Um, I think having conversations with some of these firms that can handle some of this, we got lucky. We found the right one and that was able to do it, but it can be a time vacuum if you want to do this. And I think that's why we just didn't look at it is because we were so laser focused on developing product, addressing customer needs that we just had no spare minute to spend on this just the application minutia of the whole SBIR process. Do you have any reflections for people who are at the beginning of their entrepreneurial journey, or at least looking at SBIR for the first time? Do you have any, any reflections on who SBIR is a better fit for, maybe some red flags that people should be thinking about before they go down that investment in time? 
Yeah, I think, again, it's being able to just do the application process, the reporting. I think a lot of companies make the mistake of what you said initially is when they start out, they build a revenue model off of SBIR. And I think that's super dangerous. You don't want to do that. You never know. Um, you know, there's our a tax and political button at the end of the day, that faucet can get turned off and on again with, with and it, these factors are largely out of your control. Again, they're due to political issues, geopolitical issues. And so I would say the thing you want to avoid is, you know, betting the farm on SBIR funding, because that's just not a healthy way to operate your business. That's yeah, so wonderful. Thank you. If anybody's listening that should reach out to you. Is there anybody in particular that you're trying to meet, whether it's employees uh, on the government side, investor side, any shout outs to people to reach out to you? Yeah, we're always in a hiring um, mode. We anticipate a patch of growth for our company over the next um, couple of years. We're also hiring different locations. As I mentioned, we have a factory or a toll manufacturing relationship on the East Coast. So yeah, we're looking for talent for sure. I'm always looking for customers, I'm always looking for strategic partners as well. So yeah, I think all, all of the above and maybe some therapists as well sprinkled in every now and then. But no, it's been a, a great time here at Electronics, growing the business from, again, just two or three of us to where we are now, which is a headcount of close to 30 here at headquarters. And then with consultants and sales agents worldwide, I think we're at 40 now. Um, it's really been awesome to build this. That was Melbs Lemieux from Electronics, and we know how hard it is to decipher the federal market. So for more interviews and assistance, go to fedscout.com.